If you're able to remain standing, take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. And we read, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Banai, Kadamiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadamiel, Banai, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah, Said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham. And brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him the covenant and made and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their uh, pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them, uh, and, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock of their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, 
and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your, your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, and that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies and made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously, and you did not obey your commandments, but you sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon you, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in large, rich, large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day, and in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings 
whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of the princes, our Levites, and our priests. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, kids, you just got a little sampling of what it's like for the Israelites as we talked about last time uh, in chapter 8 about how they stood for six hours to hear the word of God read or in our passage today as they read the word of God for a quarter of a day. That was nothing. Uh, I mean, what we just went through was nothing compared to what they did in terms of listening to God's word. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open his word today. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word and we, uh, God, uh, come because we want to hear you speak to us. We need, God, to hear the things that you have to say. But we know that the Satan is here to seek to, to snatch away the word, uh, that it may not take root in, in our hearts and, and produce fruit and uh, God be uh, lived out in our lives. But we pray uh, for the work, the mighty work of your word and spirit to be done in our hearts that we might glorify you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, you can just imagine that in 38 verses, there is a lot that's in this uh, chapter. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's, it's sort of somewhat challenging as, as you look at this chapter to think how we're going to get through this. And part of that is there's so many different things in this chapter. In one sense, this chapter is a model prayer uh, in so many ways, much like the prayer that Abraham prayed for Sodom in Genesis 18, or the prayer that Daniel prayed in Daniel 9, or Ezra in Ezra 9, or even Nehemiah back in the first chapter of this book that we've been going through. And so this prayer can be a model for us in so many ways, especially if you're struggling in your prayer life. One of the things maybe that those of you that have been coming on Wednesday nights to the prayer time, you've noticed that there's more times where we're praying the scriptures, where we're taking parts of the scriptures and praying those things back to the Lord. And if you're struggling in your prayer life and it needs to be invigorated, I would encourage you to take prayers like Nehemiah 9 and make those prayers yours as you pray them to the Lord. But not only does this chapter talk about prayer, but it's also a great treatment of God's character and, and of his works. And uh, there's just so many things that are in this chapter. But it, it's, it sort of reminds me, this chapter of uh, uh, my seminary days, when one of my professors stood up and he said, men, you have to understand that sometimes when you come to the scriptures, it's a lot like an umbrella. Now kids, if you ever think of drawing an umbrella, you know, don't you usually, you start with uh, a big overarching line, right? And then you make these little squiggly things down below, right? And then you make the little handle and stuff like that. Now I say that, but some of you kids are so crazy artistic, you would probably draw an umbrella and it would look like an umbrella, right? But for those of us like me who draw stick figures still, that's how you do it. You sort of have the, and and a, and a scripture passage can be like that. It can could be it can have all these sub themes in the text that you could look at and it wouldn't be wrong to look at those things but my seminary 
my professor says, but be careful to try to find the overarching theme that is in the text. And that's what we want to do today. And what we see here as we look at Nehemiah 9 is how it deals with confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. That we see who God is as holy, holy, holy. And we see who we are before God in our appropriate response to him. You know, we've been talking about the people, how they returned to the land and they were in Jerusalem and they, they've rebuilt the temple and they've rebuilt the wall. But it's not enough for the people to live in the land. They must become a holy people dwelling with a holy God. They need the law of God to be written upon their hearts. And it's at this point in the story that we see God reviving his people. And he does this work of revival through his word. Now, the confession and the repentance that we see in our chapter today, in chapter 9, is directly related to the events that came in, in chapter 8. In chapter 8, we see the people of God hearing the word of God. They were listening, like I said, for hours. Many commentators believe it was at least six hours that they were listening on top of then having the word of God explained to them and applied to them. And as a result of that, they were convicted by it, and there was great mourning and sorrow and grief. Uh, but we mentioned that while this is a good response and a right response to have to God's word when that happens, we see in chapter 8 that Ezra and the leaders told the people that they were not to mourn because they were celebrating the Feast of Trumpets. And that was to be a day holy unto the Lord. It was a day of celebration, a day of reflecting upon God's great acts of salvation. And, and then after the Feast of Trumpets came the Feast of Booths, which was also a time of celebration and remembering about what God had done and delighting in His mercy. And throughout all this time, even through then the Day of Atonement, where they looked at how God had redeemed His people, uh, through all these things, pe the people continued to hear the word of God, as we see in Nehemiah 8, 18. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. That word, uh, it began to do what the word of God always does in the hearts of his people. The word began to bear fruit. And we come to, to Nehemiah chapter 9, now two weeks. Uh, has passed since Nehemiah chapter 8 and the Feast of Tabernacles is over, right? All the, the joy and, and the celebration and the singing are done. And now we see in Ezra chapter 9 verse 1, it's sort of the perfect opposite. Rather than all this time of celebration, we see the people are assembled, but they're fasting instead of feasting. And they have sackcloth instead of celebrating. And they have dirt from the earth on their heads. You see, one of the ways the Word of God bears fruit in us as we read it is that the Word leads us to repentance. It leads us to repentance. But notice that the people were first led to rejoice in the Lord. Now, I was thinking about that this week, and I want to be very careful not to go beyond what Scripture says, but I thought that was very interesting that, that God had them focus on his salvation before they focused on their sin. And 
And I think the problem with looking at your sin apart from hope and God's salvation is that it can lead you to despondency and worthy and even self-loathing. But when you see your sin in the context of God's great redemption and salvation, it leads you to a heart of joy and praise and worship to God. It leads to true repentance and not just remorse. So the joy we have in the Lord is to lead us to commit, commit ourselves to God and His Word. And so in Nehemiah 9, we see how the Word of God bears the fruit of repentance in the lives of His people. And we're going to talk this morning about what that repentance looks like. The first thing we see about repentance is it is about confessing our sin and our faithlessness. Confessing our sin and our faithlessness. Now look at verses 1 through 3. Now on the 25th excuse me, 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of it they made confession and worship the Lord their God. As the word of God convicts his people of their sin, it leads them to repentance, a, sin, a sense of a mourning over their sins. They are humbled by their sins. That's where we see the fasting and the sackcloth. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things, right? Our heart deceives ourselves. You know, we, we think we see so clearly and we understand the condition of our own hearts, but the Bible tells us otherwise. That's why Romans 12.3 says that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But, but it's in times of repentance when the Holy Spirit works through His Word and we see our heart condition as it is. And this is one of those times where God is working through His Word to show His people the true condition of His heart. You know, this week I was pondering uh, and wondering how many times do we, as we come to corporate confession of sin in the worship service, do we just simply go through the motions? Do we use it just sort of as, as a ritual? We go through the motions, we say the words, we pray with the pastor who's, who's praying, but, but then once again have our hearts deceived us. Do we walk away with, a, with truly not a sense of our own sin? Our hearts have not been open before God. We've just sort of gone through the motion. Let's go on. Let's, uh, let's do the next part in the worship service. But the Jews were not just merely going through the motions. They, they were truly mourning over their sin and confessing their sin. They were moved to, to even separate themselves from their sin. And that is from all the foreigners. Now, not that foreigners are sin, but... But God had commanded his people in Leviticus 20, verse 26. He said, you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And we'll see more about who these foreigners were later on as we get into Nehemiah. But they knew that what they were doing 
in this association was wrong and so they were repenting of that sin and removing themselves, separating themselves from the foreigners. They were in essence saying to God, we belong to you and we will serve you alone. We want to do what your word says. We want to obey you. And so then after that, Israel cries out to God in a prayer. And this prayer goes from chapter from verse 5 all the way to verse 38. So it's a long prayer, but it's one that follows a pattern that many of the Psalms follow, where it's sort of recounting what God has done and confessing the glory of the Lord and the grace of God, but also confessing their own sin and their ingratitude towards God. And it starts with the Abrahamic covenant and moves on to the Mosaic covenant of Sinai. And they talk about how Israel was brought into the promised land. And finally, they end with the, the, their, their current situation of their day and their own sin. And through this prayer, there are two main themes that, that stay the same. They, as God's people, have sinned and act foolishly, and the Lord has been faithful to his covenant. As we come to the Lord, we are confessing our own sin and our own failure. But also, we are confessing His righteousness and His faithfulness. Uh, when we come to the Lord to confess our sins, we are not seeking to just our, justify ourselves in, in any way. You may recall the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the, the Pharisee, they both went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, first of all, prays. And he prays and he tells uh, God of all the good things that he has done. He wanted God to know that he was righteous, that he wasn't really all that bad. But the tax collector, when he comes to pray, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He looked down and he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, he didn't just seek to justify himself as the Pharisee did. He just came to say, God, this is who I am. And Jesus then asked, who went home justified before God? And the answer was the tax collector. The Pharisee was busy trying to convince God that he wasn't as bad as what he really was. But the tax collector knew how sinful he was. And therefore, he, he, himself threw, he threw himself upon the mercy of God. Now, we may not be as blatant as the Pharisee, but there are times when we are confronted with our own sin and we see our sin, but we seek to excuse it or justify it. Now, we all have been there. You know, somebody will say something to us, maybe about our sin, and we'll say things like, well, it was a rough week. Or you might say, you know, I'm just tired. I've had a lot of things on my plate. Or you say, I, you know, I know I've been short with the kids, but, you know, I've been working hard to provide for this family. And so seeking to justify your actions. But the goal in doing this is simply to make ourselves feel better. The problem is, it's not true repentance, though. It's not turning away from our sin. Now notice in this prayer of Nehemiah 9 that the people don't try to justify themselves. Rather, they just openly confess that they and their fathers have sinned. Look at verse 16. Uh, but they and their fathers acted presumptuously 
and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And then skip down to verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rested, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you wanted them in order to turn uh, back them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Then in verse 33, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. You see, every time that God showed his grace and mercy throughout Israel's time, they disregarded it. They did not listen to the Lord. The, the people come before God, though, now to openly confess their sins and, and to indulge themselves uh, in their, and even including themselves in this prayer. You see, repentance is coming to God and confessing our sin and faithlessness. That we have broken God's law. We have disobeyed His commandments. And we deserve His wrath. And there is absolutely no way to justify ourselves. You see, part of repentance is not only knowing... Uh, or not, is not only that we are guilty, but it's also knowing that we're guilty. And, and admitting that before the Lord. So as you come to God in repentance, confess your sin. Tell Him what you've done. Be honest. We don't want God to weigh our good versus our bad, as, uh, as uh, Psalm 130 says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? None of us is the answer that, that the psalmist is looking for. The only way we get the scales to tip in our favor when we weigh our good and our bad is if we redefine what's good or we admit a whole bunch of bad, right? Um, so we forget the weight of our sin and the seriousness of our sin. We don't want God to weigh our sin. Rather, we must come pleading the blood of Jesus Christ. Come honestly and authentically uh, to confess our sins. Sharing our guilt. Coming before the Lord, uh, admitting our, our filthy garments that are stained by our own sin that we cannot clean, to come before God with a broken heart because of the things that we have done and the ways that we have sinned against Him. But also come, brothers and sisters, being assured that we will receive the same grace that we see 
in this chapter. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so does He remove our transgressions or our sins from us. You see, God doesn't weigh our sins on a scale of our righteousness versus our, our, our wickedness. But instead, God takes our sins away from us. And all that is left is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not our own righteousness, not our own sin. But Christ's righteousness that was given for us. So brothers and sisters, come to grip with your sin and face it, trusting that Christ has taken all these sins on, him, on himself, past, present, and future. And pray and ask God for forgiveness. And if you say, but Pastor Rick, I don't know how, then I encourage, just read this prayer that's in this book. It's, it's full of, of scripture. But this prayer is also a prayer of praise. And that leads us to our second point, that repentance is about worshiping God for his mercy and his love and his faithfulness. Worshiping God for his mercy, his love, and his faithfulness. Actually, if you look at the beginning of this prayer, which is found in verse 6, Israel begins with praise to God. And as you focus on who God is and you worship Him, it will lead you to confession of sin. If you look at our order of worship, you know, uh, how we do our worship service, we begin with a time of praise. And we worship the Lord and we, we uh, affirm our faith together and we're focusing on Him. And, but as we lift our eyes to behold and to see who God is, we also see more who we are. And that leads us to a time of confession. We are led to confess by worshiping God for who He is. The people beg, begin by blessing the name of the Lord. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This sort of sets the tone for the prayer. And, and the Lord is the creator and the preserver of all things, as you see them praying. And so he deserves all worship. Verse 5 says, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You see, they are praising and blessing God for His character and His nature as He has revealed Himself. But you see, worship entails living in relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it's very hard to worship God if you don't know Him. Oh, you can go through the motions of worship, and unfortunately there are probably many Sunday mornings when Presbyterians all over the world and others from other denominations are just simply going through the motions. But to give such heartfelt worship requires knowing and loving God. It, it, it requires knowing God intimately enough to be transparent to confess your sins, knowing that where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. That's an intimacy that leads to worship. Well, this passage is, is full of references 
to the mercy, to God's mercy and grace. God's calling Abraham out of his own country to know God. That's an act of God's grace. Abraham didn't deserve to be called out of his own country. He didn't deserve to be singled out to be the father of the Jews. But God called him out in his grace. And so the Jews were saying, in essence, from the very beginning, God, as God made us a people, that God's grace has been evident. And that God, in his wonderful grace, has made his promises uh, to his people. Look at verse 8. And you have kept your promises, for you are righteous. And that is what is true of God. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a promise-keeping God. And that continues on through Moses, who delivers his people and, and takes them through the Red Sea on dry land and then gave them the law and takes them across the wilderness and gives them food and water and everything that they needed. There was nothing as their protector and preserver that God withheld from his people. And in all this, the people were constantly turning away from God and rebelling. And yet he preserved his love for them. He did not turn from them. Now, you might ask, why? Well, number one, God cannot lie. And he had made a covenant with his people. And he was going to keep that covenant. Have you ever noticed the number of times where you're reading the Old Testament and, and God's people have sinned and, and God would say something or the text would say something like this, that God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God was looking at his people, and even in their sin in the present day, and he was basing his relationship with them upon this covenant that he had made back there. And it's the same way with us, brothers and sisters, as we struggle in our sin. And you, 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 you feel the guilt of your sin, and you think, God, I cannot be worthy in your, your sight. But God has made a covenant with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what He remembers. And He will not break that covenant. He will not lie and go back on His Word. But the other reason is because of God's character. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. That's the character of our God. We are a faithless people but he is faithful. Now look at Nehemiah 9.17 uh, the, towards the end of the verse. He says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. And so God is gracious towards his people. And he leads them to the promised land. But even in the promised land, what did they do? They rebelled against the Lord. And, and, and so uh, when he did that and they turned them back on them, he forgave them and he restored them. And this happened many times over and over. They rebelled. He disciplined. They turned back. He forgave them. And it happened over and over and over. Look at verse 28. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them, 
or forsake them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. You see, God doesn't allow us as fallen humans to have the last word. What a tremendous grace this is, that God has the last word, and His name is exalted as a merciful and a gracious God. Hallelujah! Amen, that's enough. Even Presbyterians should say amen about that, right? You see, grace not only restores us to a relationship with God, but it assures us of His love for us in spite of our sin. And when we grasp the extent to what God has done for us in Christ, our prayers will express a deeper gratitude towards God. And as our gratitude for God grows, as we see Him as He is, our, our sense of sin and uh, faithlessness, it grows. We see, we see our sin more. But it is then that we come looking for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that when we are faithless, He is faithful. God is, will not abandon His people. So repentance is about confession of sin, but it's also about seeing what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and worshiping Him for that. <coughs> what has God done for you, brothers and sisters? I would encourage you to think about that this afternoon. Has He not chosen you? Has it, in Christ, has not all the blessings of Abraham come to us even as Gentiles? Now that we are his children, hasn't God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Even though the Israel sinned again and again, God poured out his mercy and his grace upon them. And so he does with us. You know, a day never goes by that we don't sin against the Lord who, who bought us. And yet, His compassion and His grace never run out. They never run out. God never grows weary and says, You know, I've had enough. You know, if you and I were God, we would have said about us a long time ago, That's it, I'm done. You know, I, I give and I give and I give, and you guys just take and take and take. But that's not the character of our God. But it's a good reminder for us to remember as, as we can become downcast that God loves us so much that He is continuing to write His law on our hearts and He's continuing to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ even when we struggle in sin, even when we rebel against Him, even when we are faithless. And so our, what is our response? Of worship. Our, our repentance is seeing ourselves for who we are, which does lead to grief and to mourning, but we also see ourselves for who we are, uh, and it causes us to see God for who He is and His mercy and grace. And that's what the people of God are doing in this chapter, which leads them to worship. You know, brothers and sisters, as confession becomes a part of your life, uh, your personal worship, your family worship, as we continue to make it a part of our corporate worship, as confession, as you taking the time to, to confess those sins before God, you will find 
that worship will become more a part of your life. As you not only see the depths of your sin, but you see the great mercy and love and faithfulness of God. You know, one of the outcomes of worshiping God for who He is, is that we have the confidence to come to Him and to ask for things that we need. And that's what the people do. They ask for, uh, they cry out to the Lord in their distress. Look at verses 32 uh, and following, uh, verses 36 and 37. You know, they talk about how they are under these rulers and they pray to Him. Why did they pray this? Well, not simply because they had a need, but they had confessed their sins and they had seen the great grace of God which gives them boldness then to ask for the things that they need. If you want to foster your prayer life in prayer, in coming to the Lord and praying more to Him, if you find yourself just going, Lord, why do I just always do things myself? Why don't I stop and ask you? Why don't I pray? Well, that comes as we cultivate the practice of confession. And as we confess, then we worship. If we worship and we see God for who He is, then we are led to pray to Him and to ask Him for deliverance on the basis of grace or whatever the need may be. You see, they are praying, God, don't forget us. Don't leave us in our distress. And their confession and worship leads them to cast themselves wholly upon God. You see, we are not to depend on our own blessings and our own efforts, but on what God can give us. So come to God in repentance. Worship Him for His grace. And then finally, come to God in His grace, turning in new obedience. That's what we see in verse 38, that repentance is about turning to the Lord in new obedience. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because the people have confessed their sin and worshiped God for their grace, they now enter into a covenant, promising to obey the Lord and to live for Him. Now, this is the purpose of confession and repentance. It, it is meant to lead us to obedience. Obedience being a response to grace. And I want to emphasize that, that obedience is a response to grace. The people have responded to God's grace and they are promising to obey His word. We need to be careful not to get this mixed up. We need to be careful not to get grace and obedience turned around. Otherwise, we can mistakenly think that we need to obey in order to earn God's favor. And sometimes I think that's where we're at in our struggle with sin, that we see our sin and the things that we are done, and we just think, you know, I just, I've done all these things. I have not obeyed the Lord, and therefore I don't deserve His favor. But this is not the place of obedience in the Christian life. The proper place for obedience in the Christian life is it is always the proper response to God's grace. It's always the proper response to God's grace. Obedience is partly how we worship. Right? Obedience is how we worship. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Right? There's that focus on the grace of God, on the mercies of God that Paul has been enumerating for the first 
11 chapters of the book of Romans. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's that obedience. You see the grace, and you're overwhelmed with the grace, which then compels you to obedience. Living as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see that obedience is our worship to God, just like our worship this morning uh, is our words of worship, our, our words are worship to God. Now, you may sometimes wonder how you can obey God more. And I would suggest this. Simply let your prayers be filled with confession and worship. And as you continually cast yourself on the grace of God, you will experience His forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ. So do that. Cast yourself upon Christ and know His forgiveness and that constant sense of having received that grace over and over and over. That will work in your heart a desire to give yourself to God and so that you can live in communion and fellowship with God and gladly walk in obedience with Him. That's what will foster more obedience. Brothers and sisters, so as, as we give ourselves to the Word of God, that the Word will bear fruit of repentance in our lives, which will draw us closer to God in confession of sin and worship for His mercy, love, and faithfulness. Amen? Let's bow our heads and, and meditate upon this Word and, and just respond to the Lord silently in a way that would be appropriate. We thank you, God, that you are a God that not only reveals yourself to us as your people, but you receive, but you reveal ourselves to us. Because as we, we saw earlier, our hearts are deceitful above all things. And we don't see as clearly as we think we see about our own hearts. But God, thank you that there are times when your spirit through your word reveals to us the condition of our heart and our need of you, our need of confession, of repentance, which leads to worship and new obedience to you. Oh, Father, may you work this in our hearts and our lives to your glory and praise. May we become more like Jesus Christ. But God, may we first of all be transparent before you not seeking to hide anything. How foolish that is anyway, Lord, to think that somehow the, the all-knowing God, that somehow we could hide from you our sin. 
Lord, help us to openly confess, knowing that you are a God of mercy, love, and faithful. We thank you, Lord, and pray all these things in your name. Amen.